Is there a Jewish gene for intelligence? Has it happened that so many of the world's Nobel Prizes have been won by Jews? And again, on a constant basis, whenever you look at it, you see Jews are always up there in all of these areas. So the greatest minds, you know, whether you're talking about the Salk vaccine or you're talking about Einstein, talking about Spinoza, whoever you want to mention, all seem to have been Jews who created revolutions with their thought. So he wants to know the Jewish race. And he asked six or seven or eight, ten questions in his book called The Jewish Mystique about the Jews. That's the 1970s. Now in the 1980s, he had a book by Paul Johnson called The History of the Jews. And I should have brought it just to read the little epilogue, which I'm doing in a Thursday afternoon class, where he makes the point, I'm a Christian. I'm a very good Christian. I'm an observant Christian. I wrote a very well-received, I'm an academician, I'm, I'm an academician, and I wrote a very well-received book on the history of Christianity. So why am I writing a book about the Jews? So then I realized, when I wrote my book about Christianity, how important the Jews are to Christianity. You can't really understand Christianity, you understand Judaism first. So as an academician, I went to it, and I spent the next five years of my life researching all about the Jews. And I ended up with a book that was very well received, called the History of the Jewish People. And especially, even uh, apropos and pertinent now, his last two chapters on the Holocaust and on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict are the best. He's closest to them. He understands them more clearly than he understands the medieval period or the classical period or the earlier period. Those are his two best chapters. And he's decidedly, very clearly, in favor of the Jews. Says, What's going on now, this is in the late 80s, it's not appropriate, it's not fair, it's not right, what's going on to the Jewish people in the Jewish state. And it's, again, it's chapters that are well worth reading. And then the 1990s. Again, 1990s. Another book, which is called by um, an Irish author, forget his name right now, but it'll come to me, on how a small Bedouin group, this is the subtitle, The Gifts of the Jews, is the name of the book, Gifts of the Jews, how a small Bedouin tribe, which is what we were going back 4,000 years, affected the way we all think and feel. So he's saying essentially again that we Jews were the trendsetters, the pacemakers. We're the ones who were able to show the world how to think and show the world how to feel appropriately and properly. So again, the Jews, again the Jews by non-Jewish authors, all are impacted upon the Jews. And of course we know we go back to Abraham Avinu, we know it goes back all the way to the principles, the values, the ideas, the ideals that he established 4,000 years ago. We've impacted on three billion people, half the world, all based on the vision and mission of this man called Abraham. So we'd like to analyze tonight a little bit, you have your Tanakhs in front of you, what was the essential core of this man? What made him who he was? Or asking the question more theologically, why did Hashem choose this man? And it um, brings to mind one of the famous... Um, aphorisms that when Jews were charged with, with anti-Semitically with calling of the chosen people and especially non-Jews were very offended by that statement how are we the chosen people Maurice Samuels one of the intellectuals of the 1930s responded by saying the following how odd of God to choose the Jews it's not so odd the Jews chose God which puts it really in a nutshell in a manner of speaking, that Abraham led the kind of life that ultimately brought upon him chosenness, 
Hashem chose Abraham because Abraham really chose Hashem and his values. And that we'll see. That we'll get to. So we want to raise the question, what is this man Abraham? And there are two tracks that one could actually follow if one wants to understand who Abraham is. One is the text and shot, what the text really tells us. And two is the Midrashic formulation as to who Abraham was, and they're really not contradictory at all. Really, in this particular case, the Midrash, rabbinic commentary, fills in the gaps and explains to us exactly who Abraham was. So now we begin at the beginning. Many of us open up our Tanakh to page 21, chapter 12 of the book of Bereshit, and we think that this is really the beginning that's going to tell us a little bit about, about Abraham. But really, the beginning, according to the Midrash, and the Rambam as well, takes place, not when Abraham is 75 years old, when the Almighty first speaks to Abraham, but rather takes place when Abraham is 5 years old, 3 years old. And he begins to think, speculate, philosophize, and wonder. Now, most of us over here have children. Hint, hint. Right? <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, I have. The Kansas connection? Okay. And those of us who pay very careful attention to our children know they ask very profound questions even as young as three, four, and five years old. And they want to know who created you and who created God and, and all these kinds of issues. So Abraham began thinking about these questions, but not surprisingly, at the age of five years old wondering what is really the world all about. And often enough what happens over here is that you begin to think very slowly, very carefully about the world. And then as you mature, you see the world in a broader perspective. And then as an adolescent, the sad part of growing up is that your innocence of who you are in the world you play in the, in the world is shattered. And then you come to that realization that the world really doesn't care about whether or not you exist or don't exist. And the world is a much grander place than simply who I thought. I thought when I was 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 that I was a center. My parents told me I was and I always thought I was. And all of a sudden you end up in high school when you're just a number. And no longer you view it as something very special. And you feel emotionally distraught at that. It's a very interesting short story that I read about them. Um, 30 years ago, 35 years ago in high school, called Two Soldiers by, by Faulkner. And it describes wonderfully well that process of growing up emotionally where when you're a little kid, the whole world revolves around a little farm and the creek in the farm and you go fishing with your brother and everything looks so wonderful and full self-enclosed. And all of a sudden what happens, your brother's called to war. He's a soldier. And he just leaves and he goes, says goodbye, and he doesn't come back for nights and nights. I understand why come he's not coming home he always came home we always went fishing together our whole world was together all of a sudden the world is different I decided as a 12 year old this young boy says to go and find my brother in the town he must be in town he goes to town and says wow what a big town I don't know such a town this big of course all of a general store a gas station a few other buildings the way folks described in the 1920s and he finds his brother and his brother says, you can't come over here. I'm in, the, I'm in the army now. I'm 18 years old. I'm in the army now. You can't come over here. You have to go home. And he takes him home. And then he sits by himself in the last page of the short story and just bursts out into tears. And the crying was one of frustration in knowing that as a young, as a 12, 13, 14 year old, that there's a whole world out there that I'm not aware of that's not aware of me. 
It doesn't care about me. Prior to this, everything revolved around me. And all of a sudden, my world is shattered. Growing up. Abraham asked those first questions. Well, who created the world? And what's this world really all about? And after seeing the silliness of paganism, idolatry, didn't make too much sense to him, sense to him, where you'd go into the forest one day, you'd cut down a tree, you would carve out a face, gild it and bow down and say, you gave birth to me. But I just created you. Abraham couldn't get it. And of course the Midrash very creatively expresses this by Abraham visiting the temple of the local area, the pagan temple, and breaks all the idols. He was an iconoclast. He broke all the idols. And next morning, says, who broke all the idols? And he puts the hammer in the hand of the biggest idol. He says, he did it. He did it. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do it. So he says, let your ears hear what your mouth is saying. He can't do anything, this, this idol. So what are you worshiping him for? Keep quiet or I'll smack you. This is his father's response. Who doesn't want to overturn the prevailing norms. People who are older, settled, have a fear of any new ideas that shatter the old ideas. So, of course, at that point, Abraham says, you don't get it, Dad. This couldn't be this way. These idols are nothing. And yet, his father, actually, when you read the end of Pasha Noah, his father did, in fact, get it. His father says, we have to leave this place. You can't stay here and say these ideas. You'll be strung up. You'll be hung. So, therefore, Terah, and this is just on page 20, which we're not going to go into very much, Terah, the father of Abraham, takes Abraham, his son, and his nephew, Lot, and they leave, they go away to another place. They want to go to Canaan, which is virgin territory for a new set of ideas. They settle in Haran, they stay in Haran, Terah ultimately dies in Haran, Abraham moves on. Abraham discovered this new idea about Hashem in the world, who's not an idol, who's in control of all that there is, and an overwhelming sovereign power. Now, in a word, Abraham, at that point in time, was a radical thinker, absolutely. But more than that, he was a philosopher. As the Rambam points out very powerfully, as well as the Midrash, it says that he was a thinker of thoughts. There are those people out there who don't think normatively or always in the box. That's the Bill Gates and the Einsteins and all those people that just go beyond that little square box that we're taught to think in. Our parents often want us just to be soldiers, follow along, in schools and other places. And then often you have those Einsteins who fail geometry because they don't know how to sit in the classroom and just think along normative lines. So they challenge and they question. And again, it's keep quiet, kid, or I'll smack you. And I, I was told that a zillion times in Mag and David and Flappish. And of course, I understand that now, as a mature adult. You can't have these little kids, you know, asking all these kinds of absurd questions that teachers don't want to deal with. Abraham was that kind of a person. Challenging, questioning, raising issues nobody wanted to deal with. That would seem to be, to be one of the characteristics, at least according to the Midrash, of the man who was going to found a people, establish a people, create a people that's going to impact upon not only his own family, not only on his friends, not only on his community, not only on his people, but on three billion people, which is half the world, and it's not over yet. Of course, we have still an obligation of teaching others. And now the critical question is, what is it that we have to teach others? So everyone's going to answer over here, of course, Hashem teaches them about God. But that wasn't Abraham's way. 
That wasn't Abraham's issue at all. What do you think was Abraham, this some of you should know by now, because you've been to Ashu for 20 years, what was Abraham's critical variable? What did Abraham think that Hashem really wanted? What did Abraham, and it's clear from the text, what did Abraham discover that Hashem really, that God really wanted from all of us, wanted from His world? And without this, there is no world. Anybody want to hazard a guess? I know I'm somewhat intimidating, but... Good. Good. Okay, excellent. So the essence of this, strike first, and are very much aware of this. So we open up our text, because I have to prove this point to you, because you don't necessarily believe it, those who are not familiar with our, our classes. And we open up to chapter 18 of the book of Bereshit, Pasuk 19. And here, on page 31, we find a really interesting context. Here, Hashem is about to destroy the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Amorah. And he starts speaking to himself. He starts raising an issue. Hashem says, to nobody in particular, in verse 17, Hashem Amon on page 31, Abraham, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I am doing? I'm about to destroy with fire and brimstone, with thunderbolts and lightning, this city called Sodom and Amorah because they're evil. Shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm going to do? But Abraham, in verse 18, shall be a great nation. And this is exactly what we're saying. And other nations shall be blessed through him. Now, verse 19 is the critical verse. I know this man, Abraham, that he shall command his children after him, and all of his household after him, and they shall safeguard the pathway of God. And what is it all about? Somebody asked you, I said this a hundred times before, you're on the yank of the street, says, what does it mean? It means I follow God. I follow, I'm a, a follower of Hashem, of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, I mean that I just, I'm committed to justice and righteousness. That's all it is. That's all it says it is. Shamru Derech Hashem. Abraham is family shall always safeguard the path of God. What's the path of God? Justice and righteousness. Around these two poles, all Torah revolves. Justice is doing that which is right, and righteousness is going beyond that which is right. What do we mean by that? Give me an example of justice. Uh, justice. Well, he's the lawyer. <laughs> okay, good point. He's the uh, economist or the stock trader. It's unjust when I lose money in the stock market. I agree with that, yes. Justice. Justice. Are you, are you committed to justice as a lawyer? Uh-huh. I wonder what they get you in law school. As a rabbi, uh, I am. We, we are lawyers as well. We spend, I spend, I bet you, more time studying law than you've spent studying law. Ma- meaning I've studied five, hour, five to eight hours a day for at least 20 or 30 years. Astounding. It's Kimbara's all law. You win my donkey, I your your car. It's the same law. So law is law. Okay, so now, are you committed to justice? Thank you. Okay. I'm fine. Thank you. So you are committed. Let's assume you're committed to justice. Give me an example of justice. Give me a case that you recently had where your sense of justice was challenged or you felt powerfully that justice should take place. And what? That's too easy. That's too easy. And he wasn't directly, I hope he wasn't directly involved in that. Otherwise the CIA wants to speak to you. Here's an interesting case where, which Michael Bader, 
from our neighborhood, called me about a couple of months ago. Young woman, straight out of, uh, I guess it was Halab or something like that, out of town, way out of town. And um, she was uh, married to a man who abused her. And she wanted a divorce, of course, there were no children involved. And he refused to give her a divorce, which makes her into what we call Jewishly an Aguna. Aguna means she's chained to this man who would continuously abuse her. She was a kid, a guy married at 17 or 18, she's married four or five years, and she wants out. So Michael's law firm, it happened to have been, took on the case. And the net result of the case, Michael called me early on in the States, the case of a Jewish source, and so we have sort of like a Jewish consultant to it, although I don't know who the person was, I know it was a certain community. And the end result was, about two or three months ago, Michael sent me the legal documents where the judge granted her a divorce, or more specifically, that's easy. The question was, justice-wise, if I grant her a Jewish divorce, how does that help her? She's still Jewishly married to this person, so I can't grant her a Jewish divorce. He must give it to her, but he's refusing to give it to her. So the judge said, this is unjust. The fact that she can't get married again, she's living in this terrible situation, is unjust. And therefore, I have to find a way, the judge thought, of getting her Jewishly divorced without, with the husband agreeing to it, because he has to agree to it, Jewishly. So he said to the man, he says, you know, I'm not happy with what you're doing. And there are, I think it's 11 or 12 criteria by which a judge settles accounts between a man and a woman when they're about to part. And the, tw- the 12th one is something called equity, which means fairness. It's unfair that you are chained to, that she's chained to you. And therefore, I'm going to fine you $1,000 a day until you decide to unchain this woman. And that's what this judge said is justice. So it was written on the, in the uh, law journal, on the front page. I had seen it. I read it. It was astounding how his sense of justice as a non-Jew was so offended by what this situation had to be that he said, I'm going to take care of this. And of course, it was a really a very important news for Jews that means that no woman will ever be chained again if she's in the state of New York. New Jersey has not gone up to that yet. But New York is something that's uh, it's amazing. It's amazing how for years, for decades, we've been dealing with these issues and with one stroke of the pen, he said, I pursue justice. As a judge, I must pursue justice. Why couldn't the bad deeds uh, come up with that? Oh, we could. All these years, so oh, we could have. We don't have the power to enforce. to enforce it. We could, we do, but we need the power. In Israel, they could put a person in jail for doing the very same thing. So they could take him and uh, they could do whatever they want with him. That is effective often enough. Sometimes it's not effective. But they would go to extreme measures. Nevertheless, there's still 40,000, 50,000 Agunot in the world today. I know about half a dozen. And they're extraordinarily bitter people. Which I understand. I mean, to, to, to be in that situation, you know, one was a teacher with us in Maimonides, and it was just in Boston. And it was just so sad to see this wonderfully fine woman just sort of like as the years went by and she could no longer get married you know we knew her for 8 or 10 years and again it was an Israeli man all this whole stuff and just left and walked out too bad it was just a horrible situation I recall once in a just one step further this issue where the table sort of returned and this is one of I think the first fights Emily and I had um, about can we turn this table off for a second just <laughs> 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 no, just a second yeah <laughs> so Emily and I are still married happily thank God <laughs> I can't believe that Rabbi what a wonderful experience wow what a story you can highlight for everybody oh, always speak so highly of your wife Rabbi I always do so back to Abraham Abraham pursuing justice 
Justice means, let's say, if you bang my car, you pay for it. Right? You committed something wrong, you bang my car, you pay for it. That's justice. What is righteousness? There's two words to the Kalamish fact. Justice and righteousness. What's righteousness? Righteousness means you go beyond the letter of the law. What does that mean? That means that, in my famous example, that if you hit my car, you should pay for it. But if that means you can't afford it, and the result of you paying for the damage that you committed against me, my person, my car, my property, whatever it may be, means that your children won't have supper tonight, then righteousness would mean that I have to forego that payment. Meaning, pay me because it's just, but I give it back to you to feed your kids. That's it, that time. Meant righteousness going beyond the letter of the law. And there are many situations in life where we should forgive and forget and, and just simply uh, go beyond the letter of the law. Here's an interesting case that I had which I couldn't figure out what was just and what was righteousness. Somebody came to me a few months ago and said that he had a building. He owned a building with somebody else and Somebody else was taking care of the building. Somebody else was supposedly depositing rent into my account, my account. And after five or six years of that, it was about um, $250,000 that he should deposit into my account. And at the end, he didn't. And when I challenged him on it, he said to me, well, I'm going bankrupt and I can't pay the money and I use your money and I'm sorry. I apologize, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think I, I... I needed your money for my business. I didn't go bankrupt. I did it. I'm sorry. So I was, of course, very flustered. This is not me just using myself as an example. Very flustered about it. I said, look, I, I need my money. You can't take out two down. I need the money. I don't have the money. I could settle with you for a hundred and a quarter. That's the biggest, that's what I can do. Okay, I'll do anything. I want my money. I need something. Give me my money. I have to live. Get a hundred and a quarter, fine. Seven or eight years pass, and this friend of mine now becomes literally a multi-millionaire. He's worth now a couple hundred million dollars. Stock went up. Company, fantastic. So, now, that man came to me, or me, came to the point of the rabbi, and said, look, should he not pay me the money? In other words, he stole the original money, I settled for half the amount, but now he's worth so much money, I need the money, why should he pay me the money? So now, do I say justice is such that he, I agree to hundred and a quarter at the end of the story, I agree. But on the other hand, righteousness does, in fact, dictate that you owed me the money, you stole my money, because you didn't put the deposit in my account. And then I settled, which I settled, but I was forced to settle. So now that you have the money, though I signed a waiver and said, it's okay, should you not pay me that money? Is that right to pay me the money? He's not, he's not obligated, but it would be the right thing to do. No, I thought it was also one at a time. One time. that's all I have now. Right. So it doesn't mean that he's not going to have it in the future. Oh, he's saying he's... he's I settled. I agree to it. I mean, I, I imagine in law... Would you want to sign a waiver release? I signed a waiver of release. See that fancy word? I'm glad you married not me. I know, I know, I know. I think he's a great lawyer. So, he signed a waiver of release, which means there's no for obligations. That's the end of the way. That, that's the way it probably would be decided in a court of law. So I thought, but righteous, if you're worth so much money, what's $125,000 for your name, for the, what's, what's right, justice, it's right, I mean, I thought it was right to pay him the money. So he wants to go to a Bedin, and that's still, in, we're just starting a Bedin, etc. So again, that's the question of where does justice begin and righteousness end, and how do you want to judge those kinds of cases. So we see in this passage 19 over here that Abraham saw that society cannot exist without a justice. 
which right is right. We have to call a spade a spade. On the one hand. On the other hand, if society is only about justice, then also it cannot exist. You also need righteousness. Sometimes go beyond the letter of the law and help the other person out. Good. That was Abraham's principle. That's what Abraham taught the world at that point. For years and years and years, Abraham felt in his bones that this is exactly what Hashem wants of the world. And therefore, Hashem says over here, I know this man Abraham. He shall command his sons, his children, and his household and his friends after him, Hashem. they shall follow the pathway of God to do justice and righteousness, those two principles, and the next phrase is highly significant. The man havi Hashem. In order for Hashem to bring Abraham that which he promised him, Abraham must continue to follow this pathway of justice and righteousness. All Torah is about justice and righteousness. That's the whole entire story. Someone says, what do you believe in? I've been doing justice and righteousness. That's what I follow. That's my whole life. Justice and righteousness. That's what Hashem says about Abraham over here. Say anything else. And Abraham, in, we see in chapter 12, taught other people those principles. Interestingly enough, the Midrash sees it, the way that we're understanding it, at the age of, say, three or four years old, Abraham raised these questions. For the next 20 years, he questioned, who shall I follow? What's the principles? He observed society. He saw corrupt society, saw evil societies, where there's no justice, and they're self-destructing. I steal from you, you steal from him, there's no justice in this society. And he saw societies where the poor person who needed money, needed a break in life, he needed a break. Whatever the reason he needed a break in life, nobody gave him a break. He saw that man die. Homeless people, whatever it may be. And at that point, Abraham said, this is wrong also. I mean, that's a human being, is it not? Therefore, that's wrong also. So Abraham discovered Justin Rice from his observation of society. And then, Midrash tells us, at the age of 40, he finally crystallized his understanding. This is what God wants of us, just in righteousness. And he started teaching it. It was a clear idea. And as such, he's no different than any other great thinker. Many great thinkers graced the, this earth and had these great ideas, and they taught them. As Abraham taught his great idea. And at the age of 75, Hashem says to him, You're right. Go forward. March. You're doing what's exactly what I want you to do. However, there's one slight problem. What's the slight problem? You can't do it in your hometown. You have a new philosophy. Lechacha. You have a new philosophy of life. I, this is the philosophy of what you have to have. This is my teaching. This is what I want you to have. Hashem confirms Abraham and all that he was thinking and doing. But you can't do it in Haran. You can't do it in Urkastim. Why not? Started, it's got to start new, fresh. Why can't I start in my own town? Because they're the evil one, they're the old pagan worshippers. Right, they're not going to get it. Sometimes people become so invested in the old system, no matter what you do to try to change it, they're not changing. They're invested. They are invested. They're going to maintain their system, whatever it may be, you can't change them. And at that point, Hashem says, really, when you have a system of evil that is self-invested, all you could do at that point is leave. That's it. So, so I know, but you know, Abraham's, it's different to teach individuals as opposed to starting in a whole new city. In a whole new city, you're surrounded by the culture, by the atmosphere, by the environment, which negates that what you're doing. 
that the more you love, the more you give, the more those children eventually will come back. They'll scream and yell and everything else. But eventually, the more you love, the more you tie those bonds of love close to the child, the more they're going to be drawn to you. Abraham gave to these people. He loved these people. He loved them so much, they decided, I'm not going to allow Stormar without to be destroyed. Which we'll get to in a moment. But that's how profound his love for humanity was. Every human being. Because you're created by God, you're created by God, just, I love you, I love you, I feel, I have to give to you. And he did. And that's the way people responded. The more you give, the more they respond. If Abraham charged for his hospitality, who'd come? He'd come, he'd pay, and that's a business deal. I give you, you give me, okay, that's business. So I'm not going to feel anything towards you. But when you give of yourself, that really touched a very deep chord, I believe, in the heart of every person. Just have to give to people. Just give and give and give. And it's true, you'll find one in ten, one in a hundred, who will take advantage of your giving. That's absolutely true. And they really throw you for a loop. Okay, that's true. That's the price you pay sometimes for giving. But it's only one in a hundred. Ninety-nine people, nine out of ten, I believe, would respond with love. That's what happened to Abraham. Abraham creates his whole entire people because of his givingness to them. So we see over here, Abraham was this great thinker, found out the secret of what God wants of the world, and he's able to communicate that to many people. We see in Pasuk 5, Abraham, Abraham took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, and all of his possessions that he had, with a very famous statement, and the people that he had converted to his way of life wasn't obviously a formal conversion that we think about today. Just people that believed in this philosophy of life. A philosophy of giving, of justice, of righteousness. Remember, in justice, you do what's right. Meaning, you're my car, you pay for it. I'm giving you nothing. You're my car, you pay for it. But in righteousness, I'm giving. I'm going beyond that letter of the law. I don't have to do this, but I'm doing it. I'm giving. That was Abraham. That was Abraham's personality. So now, these factors of Abraham's personality is what molded and shaped the Jewish people. The interesting statement Harabah makes in his Lord of Charity, where he says that if a person is cruel and not a giving person, yesh lachush diosav, suspect he's not really Jewish. If you're a not, if you're a cruel person, and you see a man that's dying of starvation, and you don't give him, you're probably not Jewish. Somewhere along the line in your genealogical list, somebody pulled a fast for somebody else, and you're not Jewish. It's a very striking statement the Ramah makes. Because Jews are known as giving people, Rahmanim b'nei Rahmanim, compassionate, giving people. That's what we're all about. It comes from over here. You read this text, you study it, you understand it, say, that's my nature. I, that I, that's what I want to have, that I should have, I'm going to give you a break. I'm going to try to help you out if I can help you out. It's true. Not every Jew is that way, and not all of us respond that way. That's the ideal, and enough of us respond that way, which shapes the character of the people. There's a critical mass of people that act that way and give. And again, don't ask me, it's Mark Twain. In the first page of his article in Art Magazine in 1998, and I have my office if you want to see it, say, Jews are giving people. They take care of their elders, they take care of their poor people, they take care of their whoever, everybody they care of. That's the gift. We give charity. I mean, it's almost laughable sometimes when you read of the charity that others give and what Jews give. 
they just were just known as a giving people. We take care, respond, which is appropriate and proper and right. That's what Abraham taught us. So Abraham now over here is this philosopher, this thinker, discovers the right idea, and he <coughs> spends from the age, say the age of four to seventy-five, whatever it may be, thirty-five years, teaching this. And all of a sudden, seventy-five years, God says, "Go for it. Go for it. Leave your environment. You cannot." create an impact in your environment but if you go to virgin territory go to the deserts of Canaan and there you're going to have an impact he does he goes there now the going itself I would submit to you takes a lot of courage you're leaving your environment you're leaving your home you're leaving your family that is something that's extraordinarily difficult to do who could do that just pack up but a place where you not know a soul, you have this new idea, this new vision, this new mission, all that, you have to leave the past behind and now start anew. So you have to have the courage of your convictions. If it's lukewarm, all weak, not a powerful motivating factor at 75 years old, it's not going to work. You must be an incredibly strong-minded person to say that I'm going to do what I have to do to hear this invisible voice which says, go forth. Imagine what his father told him. His father was with him. Where are you going? Ibn Tala Honi. That's what he told him. I'm sure he told him that. Come over here. And Fenrai went there. So it says, he tells him, Ninja, Fenrai, where are you going, bro? No, I'm going to Canaan. Lish. Why are you going to Canaan? I don't get it. God told me. The God that I believe in. That powerful idea said that I have to leave. Everything, everything. Your father, your mother, everything. Your siblings, everything. Your friends, your neighbors, everything. What will you do there? I don't know. God told me to go. In fact, look at the first pasuk over here. Go to the land that I'll show you. He doesn't know where he's going yet. Hmm. Go to where he's going. So he tells his father, where are you going? I don't know. God, my father, God told me to go. Therefore, I go. I don't have any other... I, I must go. To have in, incorporated that sense of mission, that sense of vision, so profound it becomes part and parcel of your existence, you have no choice but to go. Abraham had taught this, believed in it, this is my philosophy, this is my ideas, I have to go. God told him to go, and he goes. We read in verse 4. Abraham goes as Hashem spoke to him. And he went only because Hashem told him. He wasn't going there to find a new business deal. He was going there because God told him. Lot went with him. Lot is a fascinating personality in and of himself, something we should really study on another occasion. Because Lot is going. He has the same courage of the convictions. He's going. And yet, Lot took a turn for the worse. He went left rather than right. And he ended up in Sodoma Amorah, which is a very strange situation. Okay, not for now. So now, Abraham goes... They leave Haran where they were, and then they come to Canaan. He comes to a place called Shechem. Pagans were there at that point, as Ba'adis. And now God says to him, which he did say before, I will give this land to your children. Abraham does not verbally respond. He builds an altar to Hashem who appeared to him. Now, did he sacrifice on this altar? We're not told. He just built sort of like a remembrance. This is what God promised. I'm building this over here. Then he starts traveling. From there he goes 
east of Bet El, pitches his tent. He has east and west on either side of him. And then he builds another altar. And he calls out the name of God. He wants other people to understand this whole new philosophy. He travels. He goes now down south. So he's a traveling salesman, salesman for his ideas. All that's fine. Now what's interesting is next is that Avram then confronts famine. Famine land. He has to go to Egypt with his food. Uh, a recurring theme in Israel is that you have famines, rains don't fall, crops don't grow, famines. You go to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. Raised, I can raise the question. Was he right or wrong for going to Egypt? But who said he has the right to go? God promised him this land to his children. God said this land will be your children. Have faith in God. Should have had to definitely say. Yeah, the Ramban criticizes Abraham over here for leaving. Who said you can leave the Holy Land? You have to have bitachon, have trust in this God of yours. Yet Abraham, on the other hand, is a very practical person. He said what David said. What did David say? He's got to eat. So then what did Abraham do? I have to go eat. I'm going to Egypt. Even though this is, is, has all kinds of perils to it, his wife is at risk. Strikingly, he's concerned. He tells her, that you're a woman of stature, of dignity, of sublime beauty. The Egyptians going to see you. They kill me and take you. That's what they do in Egypt. So tell me, my sister, they will let me live. Let me live. Except that it happens. All that, why did Abraham leave? He's promised, he's leaved, he's viewed by Ramban as a transgression, as a sin. But okay, let's not worry about that now. All further, we see the second characteristics, second characteristic of Abraham, is in chapter 18, which we've already seen, is that his great love of humanity resulted in praying for Dom Amorah. The equivalent of that would be, if God were to appear to any of us in 1941, 1942, they're going to destroy the Nazis. Kill the Nazis. Same thing. Pagans, no respect for human life, and we start praying, God, don't do it. How many people here are praying that Osama ibn Laden escapes and lives it forever? None of us. We want him dead. Justice demands that this man who kills innocent men or children has to die. We all agree. This man has lost his cinnamon of He's no longer human. He's perverse. He's evil. He's everything. So that's what he is. Now, when I read the story of Abraham over here, I wonder, maybe I'm supposed to pray that he does the Shuvah and not pray that he gets killed by American forces. My gut reaction is, we have to kill this person. But perhaps, what Abraham is teaching us over here, that you have to pray for every human being, no matter how evil he is, that he should do Teshuvah and become a good person. Now, of course, Hashem's point of view over here is that you can pray all you want, but these people are so evil, so Ibn Ladin-like, that I have to destroy them. It's a very important point. That Hashem says, equally strong as Abraham's point, Hashem says, evil has to be rooted out. So what we're doing regarding Ibn Ladin is the right thing. Root out evil. And I said this in 1991, that if George Bush were Jewish, senior, he'd know that he has to pursue Saddam Hussein to the end and kill him, because otherwise he will resurrect and take very strong action against us. Anthrax, Saddam Hussein, he threatened us, he's done to his own people, is he responsible? It's a scary thought. 
Who knows? We don't know. But evil tends to recur. We learn that, interestingly enough, from Shaul. Shaul allows Agag, evil king of Amalek, to live. Well, to live, he doesn't to live. Haman, 800 years later, or 700 years later, comes from the same family. Haman Agagi. And the Midrash makes the connection. It's not me. He says, if you allow evil to live, at some point or other, you're going to pay a price for that. Saddam Hussein, we had our own concerns, and I was torn, I mentioned it in 1991 in the speech, I was torn, it's going to cost 3,000 soldiers. So I couldn't, if I were the president, I couldn't and wouldn't have the heart to sign off and to would say 3,000 soldiers will get killed to get Saddam Hussein. So I couldn't do that. The other hand, 6,000 people were killed by terrorists. You know, so what do we do? The answer is you pay a worse price if you don't go in and root out evil. That's what Hashem is saying to you, that you must root out evil. There's things in this world that I've created called absolute evil. Evil incarnate. Demonic, satanic evil. That's what these people are. That's what Hashem says Ibn Adin is. And you must destroy it. must root it out. Take a very strong step against it. Now on the other hand, Abraham had a certain boldness in challenging that. Hashem, one second, I'm a human being. I feel for these people. I can teach these people. I can make them into better people. Hashem, you can imagine, shakes his head at Abraham's naivete. It's by saying that Saddam Hussein will soon be a very nice father, feed his children, give a baby a bottle, and love humanity. A man that's killed so rapidly, and so used to killing, can never change. Assad was the same way, head of Egypt. He killed the city of Hamad, 15, 20,000 people, snapping their fingers. You know what they're doing? They attacked him. They didn't, like, they didn't want to rebel. I killed them. End story. And when you go crazy, you think what Israel's doing, so careful, surgical strikes, you want to hurt an innocent person. All that, because we care about human life. And we have to care about human life. That's our nature. That's who we are. But Saddam, but Assad, it was very simple. None of the dead people of Hasidim Hamad ever rebelled against him. And guess what? Nobody else did either. Tight, fisted, he died in his bed as the head of his country. How? Because he was ruthless. He was subhuman. He wasn't in the middle of any longer. Because he killed so rampantly. So too Saddam Hussein, so too Ibn Ladin. They have to be dealt with very strongly. Is that Sam telling my home, though? <laughs> so, yeah, Abraham's naivete is important to express. Abraham had to speak out and intensely, God, there's 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom. We'll kill all the 50 righteous people. We'll kill righteous and evil person. It is 50 righteous people. I want them all saved. Interesting. What would have been a argument of justice over here? If there's 50 righteous, say there's 5,000 evil people, what would a just man ask for? Save? 50. Out of the whole city, so what is he really asking for? Righteousness. He's saying that even if there's 50, let me walk with that 50, it's a critical mess, and we'll change everybody, the 5,000. So Abraham is really praying over here, not for justice, but for righteousness. Go beyond the letter of the law. You can't, not only can you not kill the evil with the righteous, you can't even kill the evil if there's 50 righteous, which is just, which is righteousness. So Hashem says, no, there's not even 50 people. 
So then God, then Abraham says, God forbid that you shall kill the righteous and evil person together and make it all one. God forbid shall the judge of the whole earth not do justice. Very challenging, powerful words against Hashem. Had that boldness of spirit willing to challenge Hashem in this context and saying, don't you dare, God, God forbid that your God should not do justice or righteousness. You must do it. So then he says, it's not 50, it's not 40, it's not 30, it's not 20, it's not 10. At that point, Abraham understood that God's going to destroy evil because evil has to be destroyed and we end that matter over there. So the second characteristic Abraham has, or the third, beyond this notion of philosophically discovering God, has the same issue, the same boldness of mind which discovers Hashem in a world of pagans is the same boldness of heart that prays for an evil person to change rather than let him die. Remember Noah is the alternate model. Let everybody die. He didn't pray a word. He heard God. God said, kill, kill, dead. End story. I'm not praying for these people. They're evil. Which fit into Hashem's plan. Abraham says, no, I'm not accepting that. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to challenge you, Hashem. You're the judge of the earth. Yeah, you have to do justice. Is it just to kill all of these people? So God says, there's not 50, there's not 30, there's not 20, there's not nobody. They're all evil. It's inbred evil. It can, you cannot escape, you cannot change, you cannot teach it. Evil is evil. Period. One has to learn that lesson. Jews have learned that lesson. America only recently has learned that lesson. They've confronted, they have not learned it yet. They haven't learned the lesson yet. I don't know, maybe you're right. That's fine, because if we don't learn the lesson, then you can pay a more serious price, obviously. You have to back the present and root out this evil. If we don't, we pay the next price. David, question? So then how could you even think that for a minute that maybe we should, maybe uh, Bin Laden should change and we shouldn't kill And you were saying earlier that... You, you think you were saying earlier that based on what Abraham did, yeah. If cross your mind, then maybe... Right, but on the other hand... But the lesson is clear from Hashem. That exactly, that's my, that's my no conclusion. Then Noah was right. Yeah. Noah was he, he said it to me after the But on the other hand, yes, I said all that you're saying. But the other hand... Right. Abraham was wrong. Well... He tried. He was, he was wrong at the end, but he's right for trying. Then it shows his righteousness. Yeah, Abraham just had such a sense of... Compassion is Right. Yeah, so, so misplaced compassion is not good. Okay, good, but it's right to be compassionate. But you can't, but <coughs> you've got to catch 22 here. The government would totally destroy Afghanistan, drop half a dozen atomic bombs, so you catch them all. But we don't They're do all that. dead. Right. So now we don't have a problem anymore. Yeah, we we got, we got the same, but we also knocked off, you know, 67 or 20 or 30 million other people who are, have nothing to do with anything. Right, that's, we, we can't do that. Unless so they're all evil. Concept. They're all evil. But they're not all evil. So I can't do it. Then I have to do surgical strikes. So the same thing with, uh, with uh, Saddam. Why? I, mean, you know. I agree. You can't go in wholesale and destroy the entire country of innocent people. That wasn't the idea. The idea was to go and kill him. Somehow, surgically, send in the commandos and of course two or three thousand men. On the other hand... We saved a million American lives. How many did we kill? 170,000. Yes. It's the people, right. Yes, yeah, not a perfect world. God could, could handle this perfectly. We can't. We do the best we can. 
save American, Ameri- many American lives at the court of justice. They declared I have, war. I have to agree. It has we to be. <coughs> we could have done differently? In 1945? Absolutely. I don't hear that. And how could we have done differently? <coughs> it would have cost a million lives to go and attack the band. They were not to give up the whole subject. But you will anyway. Anyway, as all the time. Every such yawning. Not my fault. His fault. Okay. I have just three more minutes. I have. So you want you my pets? <laughs> okay. I'll just finish. Then you could. No, no, Okay. So Abraham over here, the compassion of Abraham, I think, is a, an essential Jewish characteristic. Righteous of Abraham, which you have to have. <coughs> On the other hand, we have to realize not to be compassionate where one should be strong. Those two should not be. And that makes the very point very interestingly and very carefully to the Shaul. Shaul was, was very compassionate about Agag, the king of Amalek. Let him live. Let the sheep live. I have compassion on them. But when it came to the city of Kohanim that sheltered David and gave him bread and gave him a sword and all that, he killed them all. Which is horrible. It's wrong. It was terrible. So, when you're compassionate where you should, when you should be strong, you end up becoming strong where you should be compassionate. And you have a confusion of your, the right emotions. And everyone has to understand the right emotional response in all these situations. Last point. Abraham also has another great characteristic. And that is that, not only does he know when to pray, when to storm the heavens, if you will, when there's something that he sees as flawed, that, and he has to try to correct it, but of course he was wrong for that, as you, David pointed out. But then, of course, we read chapter 22 of Bereshit, which is one of the most celebrated, most difficult to understand chapters, Agedah Yitzchak. And here, chapter 22, we just see so powerfully how when Hashem says to Abraham, I need, please take your son, your only son that you love, and here the Midrash sort of... Um, Stand is where Hashem says to him, take your son. He says, oh, I have two sons. Shmaya and Yitzhak. They're the only son. So he says, yeah, each one is only to his mother. This one only to his mother. Only to Hagar. I should have that you love. No, no, I love both of them. Abraham is trying to, to stall and God's trying to get through this stall tactics. Take Yitzhak already. That's right. Take Yitzhak, he tells him, and Litlicha. The only two times in all Tanakh Litlicha appears is in the beginning and the end. Both are tests of Abraham's medal, of his strength of character. The first, to surely go ahead. And the second, to remain silent. Here Abraham has to be passive. Whereas the first one, Abraham, is active, goes ahead and does, as he does the Surah Abraham, here Abraham teaches us a lesson that there are times when he has to be passive, accepting, quiet, and silent. We see that also, interestingly enough, over here, of course, in Aaron as well. When Aaron loses his two children in Amikdash, in a very terrible tragedy, sorry? And by Edom Aaron, and Aaron just is silent. So there are times when one has to storm the heavens with one's screams and shouts and yells and tears. And there are times when one has to just accept. And here Abraham teaches us that even though it's his only son that he loves, even though it's all that, he does it. He passively, quietly, silently. And the silence is a thunderously loud silence, equal in measure to what he says in chapter 16 of Storm Amorat, where he is so, so scary, Abraham, over here, that I know I could have done that. 
You know, how do you just not do what do you just say? You know, how does he do that? But on the other end, Abraham over here just is willing to go ahead, sacrifice his son, loads his donkey, and he goes forth and does it. That's a strength of character. I mean, that's difficult to know, understand, perplexing. He was told by Hashem that his children would be Right. And he could have said that to Hashem too, yeah. And didn't he have the feeling that maybe Hashem was just calling him and there was a lot of testing him? Psychologically, it's interesting that we don't know here Abraham's inner thoughts. Sometimes Tanakh tells us you know, the thoughts of a person who's going through a very difficult time, through a very uh, impossible moment. Here he doesn't. David, for example, we spoke about him at the last class we had in Shul, is a very expressive person, and all that he felt and thought was recorded as daily. Abraham is not that person. He's expressive, he goes for this act and everything else like that. But over here, the text, as well as Abraham, choose to remain silent and we don't know what he thought. But you didn't challenge Hashem. Correct. That's my point. I thought you were going to... He could have, but he did, chose not to. So again, he seems misplaced. Oh, his intention seems... No, to the country. Here it's very well placed. Why? Over here he should, over here he should be screaming, no, this, this kid's innocent, he didn't do anything. Oh, he should be screaming, he's saying he should be. Yeah. Again, when you go back to his core personality, we all have a core personality, and his core personality, he had the intuition that there are times when I have the obligation of screaming out, and times when, maybe like Max is saying, where I have to leave this in God's hands. What do you, whatever you want, God, I want to do. Believe in God. Yeah, yeah. It he knows like that God will never harm him. It seems like you have in God. It might be that. It, it might be his... point when he's challenging God's or uh, just telling him what about all these compassionate people because he knew they are evil and he knew deserving mm-hmm. of being, mm-hmm. you know, have death upon them. But when his son, he knows that God will not harm him. He is not evil. So he believes in God that he will not... Yeah, it's a very good point. Which might be, answer to your question, is that Abraham is saying, this is going to work out at the end. The only problem I have with that statement is that it's not a real test. You, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I accept the point 100%. But that's not a real test. If, if my child knows that when I want to learn how to swim, I hold them by their foot, put them in the water, right? They know that I'm there. I'm not testing them. They know that I'm going to be there to, to pull them out. And I, maybe that's Abraham. One variation or another. Maybe Abraham really knew that Hashem was going to come in the last second and swoop down. Here he comes to save the day. Swoop down and save the child. Maybe that's what he was expecting. No, Perhaps. Oh, even if he didn't save him, it's still going to work out. Exactly. Because he, it is no harm. He's taking him. And giving him back. I mean, we're all going to die at one point. Yeah, that's so a very comforting thought. Yeah, <laughs> not, it is not a bad thing. No, it's not when you look at it in the broader perspective. Or in the broader perspective like of, believe, yeah. that there's Olam Haba, you just cross that. Yeah, I can see that. So, you're right. But how Abraham viewed this, Abraham is silent. It might have been he was he wanted to challenge and did not do so because he felt God wants you to be silent now. Or maybe he says, look, however, and I buy that point, I think it could be correct. I'm sorry? Yeah, he did. He does. Exactly, 100%. And, and you're right. You're absolutely right. That when you look at the Boris perspective, I'm saying, look, whatever it is, is what God wants and it's okay. I can deal with it.
this direct command, which involves nobody else other than me, and it's hot, I could deal with this. Storm on I can't deal with it. I'm going to scream and yell about it. But over Storm here... Storm on they, they're mostly, or they were all in the end, evil. So once yeah. you, you keep quiet over there. Scream now, keep quiet over there. No, but he learned the lesson. He's compassionate. And he learned the lesson that evil has to be punished. So he stops at 10. But prior to that, he didn't know that evil has to be destroyed, devastated, uprooted, because it's so evil. So he learned over there. He's screaming out. So maybe that's why over here he's quiet. Because over there he says, what God does is right. What you're saying. At the end of the day, whatever God wants and whatever God does is ultimately right. So if that's what he's learned from Snow Amorah, then that's over here he's silent. Now, the interesting question would be if he faced another situation, which we don't have, because now we're close to the end of his life, that what would he do next time around? And maybe there, the one lesson that I take from this is that there are times when one storms, and there have been many great rights people that have stormed the heavens over the Holocaust and raised questions and all kinds of challenges. And there have been great righteous people who just accepted it silently. Maybe both responses are correct. There are times when you storm the heavens and challenge and, and, and question and raise issues. And there are other times when you say, well, it's time to just accept what God wants of us. And for all those reasons, whatever, at the end of the day, whatever Age God is... to do a lot with it. I'm sorry? Each got to do. Like when we are young, we are more defined, we are more... Mature, more yeah. Mature. Yeah. When we age, we mellow down, we get wisdom. And yeah, you realize the broader picture. Yeah. Yeah, there could be. In any case, this is Abraham's life. It begins with Lechakar, which we discussed, Ezzelachar, which we discussed, in between Yastom Amorah. And you find that when you read the Pesukim very carefully, you really have a very profound sense of who Abraham is. And you come to understand exactly why he became the progenitor of the Jewish people. It's an extraordinary people. It's a, it's a world-shaping people. It's an impactful people. And it all goes back to Abraham and his character, his soul, his strength, in knowing, understanding all about the vision and mission of the Jewish people. Okay, Baruch Amen. Let us say this. Okay, 33. Say it together, or whoever wants to say it, bring it. Okay. Then Anu Tzedikim. You know from Shabbat. Anu Tzedikim. Ba Zanayim Shem Levati Hila. Budul Aznai Berchinor. Bereloso Zam Merulo. Shilo Shir Hadash. Yitim Again Betura. Ki Asha Devar Aznai Befol Maseu Beemuna. Hayes Lecham Mishpat. Those are words. Lecham Mishpat. Is that what you chose? That's right here. That's right. Very nice. Hayes the God loves. God loves. The Kamishpat. And we hear this in Amidah. Amidah said that. God loves Justin Wright. That's the whole story. That's the Kamishpat.
Amen. 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 Amen.